0: You're listening to the Ella podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School.
1: I would like to begin by um, acknowledging that I'm speaking to you today from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and to pay respects to their elders and families past and present. Uh, and I would also like to acknowledge uh, the ongoing existence of their laws and feel the responsibility that they bring to us here in the law school at Melbourne. So my name, uh, for those who do not know, is Adil Hassan Khan. Um, I am at present a visiting fellow at Ila, and I want to welcome you all uh, to this latest feast day in the ELA Festival of Conversations. This one's titled Critique in the Tropics, the Crisis of Indian Legal Education and Scholarship. And one which will be hopefully less uh, Raksha and Bandhan and more about Vasant Panchmini and Baisakhi. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so the conversations with uh, Professor Rukmini Sen uh, uh, from the Dr. B.R. Ambedkar uh, University in Delhi, uh, with Professors Anuj Bhuvania and Ushik Serkar from the Jindal Global Law School in Sonipat in India. Uh, I'm one of the co-conveners of this panel uh, along with my good friend and ILA visiting fellow colleague, uh, Dr. Debilina Datta. So, I'll pass on to
2: Debalina to say a few words. Uh, Debalina? Debilina seems to have uh, disappeared. Um, okay. We'll get Devlina back.
1: If not, I will uh, play Devlina's role now (laughs) quickly. Uh, So, the idea being uh, obviously, hopefully, Devlina can introduce herself, but I wanted to say uh, on her behalf a quick thing about the format that we'll be following for today's uh, festival. Um, mainly that, uh, our, uh, panelists will say a couple of, um, sort of introductory remarks about five to seven minutes each approximately. Uh, then we'll, the uh, Dibilinda and I'll have a few questions for them and they can have questions for each other. So it'll be conversational. Um, and then we'll finally, hopefully if there's, uh, about 10 to 15 minutes of conversation with the rest of you with such a rich audience that we have. so. Is Devlin in the back? Um, I don't think so. Um, but um, without further ado, I'd like to uh, invite Anuj uh,
3: Bhuvania to uh, start off with his introductory remarks. Uh, welcome, Anuj. Uh, thank you, Adil. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be part of this uh, conversation. I can see some uh, old friends in the audience uh, and hopefully some new ones as well. So just to uh, jump right in. Uh, I'm going, going to structure it along the kind of provocations that Adil and Devulina had shared with us. So, so, so I'm trying to, um, you know, um, stick to that. Okay. So, um, so just to introduce myself, um, uh, I'm trained as a as an uh, as a lawyer and as an anthropologist. Um, my broad area of work, um, where I currently work, um, in in the law school, is uh, around uh, is constitutional law. Uh, what I currently teach a core course in constitutional law, but of course I'm free, uh, but also uh, I teach courses around law and society um, and, and, and legal sociology so um, so yeah, so so one of the questions that was asked was whether there's a t- established tradition of critical scholarship in the area that I work upon now, um, of course, <laughs> legal anthropology is all about critique, but Within constitutional law in India, last couple of years, in, but the last couple of decades, I would say, but certainly in the last five to 10 years, we have seen a, uh, um, a real rise of critical scholarship um, um, uh, around uh, you know, various areas of, of constitutional law. In fact, it's probably one of the growth areas um, uh, of, of, of research in, in the last few years. Um, my general way of thinking about critique is uh, around imminent critique, you know, close reading of texts and, and, and critique from within, um, you know, to you know in that, that tradition of thinking about critique. Um, but um, while teaching constitutional law um, in India now, while there has been a um, significant Amount of fascinating scholarship um, to, to engage with, and that's that's quite exciting. Much of the stuff that I teach is re, is uh, is written, you know, within the last five five to ten years. Um, but there is a significant, um, you know, issue when you teach law in India because of the um, amount of triumphalism around Indian in constitutional law um, and Indian constitution itself in, in that that has developed in the last twenty five years. So you know. Um, especially with, uh, with the 50 years, uh, you know, anniversary and between, you know, 97 and 2000, uh, much of the writing around Indian constitutional, um, uh, you know, the fact of its durability, the fact that it's one of the few countries in the third world which has, which has survived with uh, the same constitution um, um, has led to a kind of um, deeply entrenched Indian exceptionalism around various aspects of of Indian constitution. My own uh, uh, prior work was on uh, PIL, one of the probably the the most fetishized aspects of Indian uh, constitutional law for for decades now. Um, um, This is a good example of of Indian exceptionalism in constitutional scholarship because uh, the the, the departures that PIL made were celebrated for decades as kind of India's great contribution to global jurisprudence. Um, along with uh, some other areas like basic structure, but um, and this is not just about uh, about the 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 kind of fate that judicial review has in the tropics, uh, but the many other areas of Indian constitutional scholarship, which state which has the same kind of a, uh, um, tendency of what I call kind of post-colonial exceptionalism. But really, India is a kind of vanguard of post-colonial exceptionalism. So, whether of course PIL is a kind of Indian version of judicial review, if it is judicial review at all, uh, my current area of it is federalism. So, whether Indian India has federalism at all has been a moot point for a while. But the kind of but what is remarkable is that if uh, any scholar of Indian constitution will be surprised how much celebration there has been about the Indian f- model of federalism in the last two decades, um, um, from Ninety-nine. There's this famous article by Alfred Stepan, well-known political scientist, on federalism from America being the model of, of federalism to India being proposed from that time um, uh, as the kind of model of, of federalism, which is quite remarkable. Uh, uh, so my my kind of point is that a way of thinking about all of this is uh, think about how any of this when you think about Indian constitution applies to Kashmir, you know, when you study uh, in, in Indian schools, there's this kind of Gandhi's talisman, there's a kind of Gandhi's talisman about how, what you, what you do will impact a poor person. Uh, so when I think about critical scholarships, especially in public law in India, whether it be um, constitutional law, international law, criminal law, think about how that's got, that, that, that way of doing research or critique um, um, uh, works with India's record in Kashmir for the last 75 years, how in criminal law or criminal law or, or, or way of thinking about international law works with Kashmir, and I, feel, I believe that that's been a huge blind spot in Indian legal scholarship in general, and certainly with, with constitutional scholarship. One of the great landmarks of Indian um, uh, constitutional scholarship coming of age was the Oxford Handbook of Indian Constitution about five years back, which is a really um, remarkable uh, collection of excellent essays, and in fact, become a kind of a bestseller, which is Tell you, tell you something about what's going on with Indian constitutional scholarship and an interest in Indian constitution in the last few years. Uh, but uh, interestingly enough, it doesn't even have a chapter on preventive detention. So uh, out of the 60 odd chapters, you couldn't find a chapter on one of the defining aspects of Indian constitutional experience tells you um, something. So yeah, so, so Indian judicial review, Indian federalism, Indian secularism, um, you know, these are all instances of Indian... Um, um, of, of kind of exceptionalism around which a kind of a heroic narrative has been built over the last um, couple of decades, especially since the late nineties. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so as far as my critique uh, in the classroom as, as scholar, and as a scholar goes, I, you know, I think this, um, it's, an, it's a critical engagement with kind of, this kind of celebratory heroic narrative about the Indian constitution and to kind of foreground the kind of profound illiberalism in, in Indian constitutional design and its development. Uh, whether it be around civil liberties or be around centralization in my current work. Um, and of course, I draw uh, a lot from, uh, in, from critical uh, scholarship um, around um, South Asian legal history uh, and law and society, of course. Uh, uh, you know, um, so for instance, on federalism, uh, what is quite remarkable I find is that uh, Indian constitutional scholarship tends to ignore the kind of critical um, historiography of partition that has arisen um, in the last three four decades since Aisha Jalal's seminal work, and proceeds on the question of federalism as if uh, in a kind of a fetish around constitutional assembly debates in India is quite quite incredible. So so you know to, to push that uh, to push that question further and to think about the kind of debates around um, consociational uh, federalism that were, that happened for almost two decades of the of the law, of the end of uh, colonial rule. Uh, and somehow that that disjuncture you know, between historical scholarship and constitutional scholarship, making the, putting them in conversation itself, is quite an important, um, up to my mind, intervention that is that is um, that I try to do uh, in my current work. Um, and uh, with regard to my earlier work, just just adopting a an you know, ethnographic method up towards PIL already kind of um, you know brought to the fore um, the 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 absurdities and the, and and the problems that the, the that the process uh, of PIL posed uh, because traditional legal scholarship was just ill equipped to deal with uh, with uh, with a jurisdiction like PIL which didn't even end up in judgments often enough to look at its minutiae, to look at it in its materiality was the uh, what was i think key to um, to to be able to critique um, um, PIL um, I think I'm here, well. Be out of time, so I'll just uh, speak briefly about um, uh, the the BLB program uh, in in India, which was introduced in eighty seven. Has been thirty five odd years now, and it's basically displaced um, the the traditional three year uh, uh, law program that 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 was in place um, earlier and. Uh, very few decent universities. I mean, very decent decent programs around three year law school, uh, the, on the three year uh, law program anymore. Unfortunately, which is I think very unfortunate because they could have both could could have coexisted, but they don't. But I do believe that the, the B.L.L.B. Um, experiment, the five year interdisciplinary law program, has um, definitely invigorated um, scholarship around law in terms of infusing um, social science. Um, scholarship and in, in, in directly co- in conversation um, in uh, with law, which has, which has been really a, a, a massive growth area in the last you um, um, few decades. Um, so so yeah, that's 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 a, it's an exciting time to be in to to be a, a scholar in Indian law and especially Indian public law now right now. But of course, if anybody's familiar with, with the situation in Indian politics right now, it's the kind of a, um, <laughs> a strange uh, time to be. Doing critical, I mean, in an important time to making critical interventions, but but I believe that um, um, what has happened just to end is that because of the uh, the kind of developments in the last seven years of of uh, the rise of uh, nationalism in, in India, um, what has happened is that there's been a kind of exceptionalization of this period. Um, which is, of course, uh, this period is in some, some ways exceptional, but there's kind of less of a rethinking about around the narratives around Indian uh, constitution, Indian nationalism, Indian, the Indian Union itself. Uh, and I think it's time to ask those tough questions. I think i Thank
1: you so much, Anuj. I, I really liked... Uh the description of uh, critique as sort of a sobering anti-celebrationism. and <laughs> I think that's important to bring into a classroom. So talking about sobering anti-celebrationism, uh, let's have Oshik uh, say a few words. Uh, uh, Oshik, uh, you want to take us off?
4: Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Adil, and um, thanks, Dabulina, for, for putting this together and, and for the prompts. And... Uh, Thanks, um, Anuj, for starting us off. Uh, my preliminary thoughts are not going to be as um, um, as profound as as Anuj's. Um, what I wanted to uh, focus on, um, you know, in these opening remarks, was to give a kind of simple sense of what critique has meant for me. So. Um, interestingly, both Anuj and I studied, uh, as, you know, in as part of the um, uh, the five year integrated uh, law degree, um, and which has a, 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 a component of social sciences and and the humanities in the initial two years. Although we've been to very different. Um, uh, law school. So, um, and and that's a that's a question. I think we might want to return to at a certain stage about you know um, about the about uh, the five year uh, course might mean different things to different people depending on the kind of law school you're going to. And which has been part of the the national law school in Bangalore, and which has had its prototypes elsewhere in India. And I went to the ILS Law College. Um, in uh, in Pune. And so um, critique was uh, not a word that I encountered while in uh, law school, either in the social sciences or the humanities in the uh, first couple of years. Uh, My introduction to the word interestingly happened outside of the law school space while I was at law school. And the two locations where um, I encountered the word was one was uh, as a as a student activist. I was part of uh, uh, an anti child sexual abuse campaign in the city of Pune um, called Muskan, which was housed in uh, one of India's oldest uh, feminist uh, archives uh, and libraries called Aluchana. Um, and it was there, you know, uh, as a as a first year law student during a discussion on something as simple as what's the difference between sex and gender, uh, that the word critique was was introduced. And it seemed at that time uh, like a very very important productive word because what it helped to do was identify with uh, an orientation, a way of seeing the world, you know, if you, would, if you could call it that, um, which uh, takes. Uh, the, the practice of suspicion uh, seriously and, and suspicion towards uh, received wisdom, as it were. So it didn't get introduced as an academic or conceptual idea. Um, it, it, had a, it had more of a political heft uh, at the time uh, when I was part of these workshops that uh, on gender and sexuality that, that Muskan, uh, the campaign, would do uh, with uh, young people. Um, the The word gained some kind of uh, conceptual uh, layers uh, a few years later while I was still at law school uh, when I joined um, uh, the women's Studies center at Pune university um, to study a course uh, a, a postgraduate diploma in in women 's studies and that was for the first time that critique uh, you know uh, was a word that was and consistently appearing in the kind of readings that uh, that the course had had prescribed. Um and it in many ways uh, confirmed um, and and strengthened the the prior sense in which, uh, critique was introduced to me, which he, which was to develop a certain kind of uh, you know, doubt or suspicion towards received wisdom. And uh, uh, the, the, the political heft that the word carried um, uh, was also kind of in, in many ways uh, uh, turned into uh, uh, an academic tool to identify the ways in which the, the similar set of concerns that. Uh, an activist con- uh, campaign would have uh, might also have place in, in academic work. So interestingly, uh, what was happening for me was that um, alongside an activist idea of critique and, uh, and, and, a, and a conceptual idea of critique that I was um, learning about at these two uh, places outside of the law school was I kind of then took back into the law school space um, with me. Um, and which is why, and this is, I think, something that I might want to come back to later. Uh, one of the uh, one of the obsessions in uh, in law school, particularly in a subject like jurisprudence that I teach, is to continuously return to this almost um, deceptively simple question of what is law and uh, what uh, this uh, this experience from my law school days. Helps me do is to kind of think about uh, the the line drawing that happens between what is law and not a, uh, what is not law continuously at play in in some form or the other um, so the fact that you can you know um, learn about law from uh, from places outside of the disciplinary precincts of law was something that you know um, something that I appreciated. Uh, much before um, I had any, you know, um, any sense of what the discipline of law entailed, despite being uh, uh, a law student. Um, Over time, of course, uh, something has happened to critique for me. Um, In my teaching life, I, you know, I've primarily been in a law school space. So unlike Rukmini or Anuj, who've had forays outside of, uh, you know, uh, both in terms of training as well as in terms of location, I have not taught outside a law school. Um, So there's kind of been a a certain kind of disciplinary fidelity uh, that I have maintained over time. Um, And that disciplinary fidelity within the law school has allowed me some movement. So when I started full-time teaching, I you know, I did teach core law subjects like thoughts and, uh, and and the law of crimes, but I, at, at that time at, at Jindal, where I was part of the founding faculty cohort, um, those trained in the law were also teaching sociology, history, and political science. And I taught all three subjects without being trained in, in any of them. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, the, the ease of that movement across uh, disciplines within, the lost good space is something, I guess, what, what uh, uh, you know, critique in many ways enabled. Um, but what used to be initially, and I'll end on this point, what used to be critique for me earlier, given that I carried a certain kind of activist commitment, uh, you know, in my initial days of teaching, I was a human rights lawyer with Amnesty International, before, you know, and then I left that, that job to to take up full-time teaching, is that critique in many ways was a moral project, right? It was about you know it, it is what academics could do, uh you know to replace the idea of resistance. So uh, it was in many ways co terminous with the idea of resistance. You you challenge received wisdom, um and received wisdom took the form of you know structures of oppression, so on and so forth. You know the the kind of uh the the kind of um um. Uh, the kind of things that one would talk about in, uh, in, in in the classroom about why critique is important. But over time, I think um, critique, uh, I, I wouldn't say that I've let go of critique as a moral project, but I think that commitment to critique as a moral project has certainly waned for me. Um, and a primary reason for that being that at the time when I was thinking about being the critical figure, in the law school space, uh, uh, there were very few of us who were actually using that language or doing what we, you know, identifying what we do as as critique. And in the last ten years or so, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't have an assessment of whether that's good or bad. Critiques everywhere, you know, critique is common sense, um, and i you know, um, and and I'm I'm not too sure much much you know uh, much like Anuji's that critique ought to in many ways um, uh, interrupt the the, the, uh, celebratory narratives. Um, uh, I'm not too sure whether this is a good thing or a bad thing about critique being everywhere. But I do see that uh, there's some worth in in putting the critique as a moral project on the back burner for the time being, and to think about uh, saving critique from itself. And I think that is, a, that is part of what I try and do in the kind of teaching um, that, uh, you know, uh, that I'm doing currently, uh, where, where, where critique is the first place to go for students. It, it's like you know, second nature to law students. Um, uh, so critique has taken on a certain kind of orientation, which is about um, you know, uh, developing an antagonistic relationship with the text, for example you know, I'll, I'll rest it under my control. Uh, you know, critique is about being able to be completely contrarian all the time. Um, uh, so things that carried a certain kind of moral heft earlier uh, seem, to, uh, have, ha- seem to have a, a certain kind of depoliticizing effect in the classroom for me uh, currently. But I'll stop there and maybe we can return to some of these points later.
1: Thank you so much, Oshik. Uh, I really like the sort of, uh, I mean, the various registers of travel that you brought out. Uh, I think I hadn't thought about, you know, uh, a lot of those. Uh, and that'd be good to come back to in the conversation. But yeah, the critique, critique's own party is being pooped. Uh, so that'll be interesting. But um, Rupani, please, uh, if you can um, say.
0: Thanks, Adil and uh, Devolina, for putting this together. Uh, and uh, so, uh, so the way I would also kind of, uh, you know, respond to the really useful prompts that uh, that were shared um, would be trying to go back and look at teaching uh, at a law school for the first. Uh, Seven years of my teaching career and then teaching law and society as a course uh, to uh, social science students in uh, in a marked social science and humanities public university in Delhi. So the law school was Calcutta and uh, this is uh, social science and humanities uh, uh, universities in Delhi. Now, and, and this kind of spans about 20 years, the last 20 years. And I'm also trying to, through that in some senses, maybe be reflexive about the way in which social legal scholarship has, uh, you know, uh, ha- has, it, has it kind of shifted from making baby steps into uh, law school Uh, 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 curriculum and where does law as a, not just as a subject of interest, but and in the way in which it affects everyday lives of each one of us, how does that enter into a social science and humanities space? So, is, is that that's that's also something that you know one is thinking about? Uh, so, with respect to the law school experience, two things that I would want to point out: I was teaching sociology there in the first two years uh, of uh, you know. Uh, uh, uh law school uh, uh uh teaching and you know one of the things that somehow uh you know, uh, uh, somehow just came at that point of time was why was these social sciences disciplines being taught in the law school? Uh, of course, there is a broader curriculum change, et cetera, et cetera. This is five years integrated and therefore. But I remember, you know, when I was teaching at uh, the law school in Calcutta and looking into its own, you know, history through its, through the act that formed it, etc. there were two things that was written in the act. Uh, which formed that law school, which as if made it mandatory for students to learn sociology. And what was that? Uh, one was developing a sense of responsibility in the students to serve society. And, you know, this, this kind of connect between do sociology, if you study sociology, you will be able to serve society. And that is something which, which kind of pervades even those who study MA sociology. You know, why do you want to do MA sociology? I want to serve society. And that was written, inscribed in the law school uh, act that made NUJS. And uh, the the other thing was endeavoring to make law and legal processes efficient instruments of social development. Uh, So these were the two assays kind of, um, you know, broader uh, reasons other than maybe the the need for integrating social sciences uh into law school curriculum while uh being there for seven years one had an opportunity to go through this curriculum review uh you know uh, processes that took place uh where you know it's like you infuse social science sociology somewhere economics somewhere history somewhere into the law curriculum uh and and one, one, one has been thinking about it a lot over the years, but uh, probably three ways in which this process could be captured. One is clearly a rejectionist mode, you know, one is not interested in doing it. We do law, we don't do sociology. The other was a more accommodating thing. I don't have it in the course outline, but I do it in the discussions, yeah. And the third. And the third was, you know, you know it's it's part of the research so there is there is more of an interaction about it and i would still look i still felt that it was more temperamental rather than pedagogic and and you know uh, that's that's of course my experience 2002 to 2009 in a law school and i'm really really hoping that you know these kinds of processes, or these, uh, you know these these thoughts would have probably changed over a period of time. It definitely depends upon what law school are we talking about, something that Oishik mentioned, and you know other 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 factors clearly. So from that kind of a situation, where I would think that being trained only in the discipline of sociology, all my degrees are in sociology. The one way one engaged with critique uh, very early in sociology was defamiliarizing the familiar. That is, uh, that would be the way in which critique would come, you know, again, as if naturally into the life of a sociology student. Now from, and that is what one would probably try to do also in, you know, in a law school kind of a framework where one of the questions that one would constantly encounter is then what needs to be done? So, you know, there is a critique, but then the immediate question is, what needs to be done? So how do we solve it? And, you know, I kind of link it to that, that inscription in the Law School Act, which says that it will enable you to serve society better. So so from there, this question about how would you resolve it? Your know, so of critique is looked uh, as literally you know this is a social problem and you need to resolve it yeah that's that's the kind of way and somewhere then you know the entire critical temperament of defamiliarizing the familiar suddenly vanishes so from there this last you know uh, i'm you know teaching at the ambedkar university now for the last 11 years and of which 5 years i have done an elective course which is called law and society and so there are two, uh, you know, uh, uh, probably conceptual pecs through which I would l- like to look into this exper- experience of, as if teaching law to sociologists, uh, gender studies students, development studies students, English students. Yeah, so that's 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 the kind of um, you know student composition that I'm talking about who've come to do masters in these. Interdisciplinary areas and is doing this elective course law and society. And I think one way in which I feel that from defamiliarizing the familiar, if that was the conceptual peg to critique that I had, from there I think the shift has been towards discomfort. And and I think there is a journey in between, probably which, which one has not given up, but but maybe one is not foregrounding it in such a way. I and mean, in probably in some senses, you know, uh, one, is, uh, one is close to something that Oishik said, the journey in between which one has not given up, but one is not necessarily foregrounding is resistance. Uh, but, but shifting from, the, or, or talking about the discomforts around constantly emphasizing resistance as the political project of critique. And, and trying to actually think, you know, everyday lives are led much more through discomfort, much more through, you know, meandering through resistances and not always being able to really resist, you know, in the way in which probably Feminist politics asks us to resist, or feminist politics knows that this is resistance. So you know, so from there to actually think about what is discomfort, and I've actually I felt doing the law and society course that there is a discomfort both with the text of law, but there is also a discomfort with respect to the practices of feminist politics that has led to certain kinds of you know, legal processes. Yeah, so the discomfort is actually at both levels. It is not just with the text of law and it is not just about, you know, it is is not implemented properly, but it is more about what kind of ways in which my life is meandering, the kind of social plural locations that one comes from and what happens when one actually is engaging with, uh, you know, let's say a feminist uh, lens perspective through which we are studying law? And I'm, I've been actually, um, you know, uh, one of the recent pieces that I have written has kind of focused around, you know, questions, the discomfort around marriage, which I think is is a broad area, but, you know, I'm saying it's marriage, but it is not marriage really. It is, you know, uh, from intimacy to uh, coercion, to consent around choosing one's partner. And, And how is it that in this law and society classroom, how does discomfort play there when we discuss these kinds of things? The last thing that I would want to say you know in 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 terms of trying to uh, get to uh probably uh, you know is is legal critique a political project and how do you how do you kind of uh, link it to questions around diversity of laws or you know diversity of lives per se and You know, I I somehow think that what is happening in the classroom is is an important point, needs to be a very important point of discussion Uh, in terms of not just the text that we are using, but also maybe in terms of uh, evaluation patterns that we do when we do these kinds of courses. And how is it that we built in, let's say, critique resistance Creation, even in our evaluation patterns, and one of the and, uh, one of the one of the things that you know I try to try in this law and society course is to do a court visit, and of students who otherwise would not be going to a court, yeah. So who visits a courtroom, uh, you know, premises is also as if you know already given in 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 the system, and when you know, these students, social sciences students go, uh, there's some kind of a brief ethnographic diary they keep. And there are very, very interesting reflections around the everyday ideas of critique around, let's say, people, papers and power as they see in the court, that's one. The second is, you know how do you how do you think about a space within the site of the courtroom? And people do talk about you know family courts inside uh, uh, inside a district court, let's say. And where is the family court's location, the site, etc. And the entire labyrinth uh, of uh, of the courtroom space where it's the lawyers who dominate. Uh, so these kinds of obs- these kinds of observations i i do think are ways in which you know we move towards that journey of both discomfort as well as negotiating the everyday lives of law but also everyday lives of people where there is you know there is clearly a decentering that i think that's that's an attempt a decentering from a very celebratory mode in which we think about um, critique uh, to a more messy space that critique is, where I suppose um, empathy is an important methodological tool to practice. Thank you. I'll stop.
2: Thank
1: you so much. I think we've got Devlina back.
5: Um, I, I I think I'm back. Okay. Uh, thank you, Rukmini. And I'm sorry, my internet has been in this perpetual crisis. Really have to be critical of that now. But uh, so thank you actually to all, all speakers. And I just want to kind of hold on to something that I thought will be useful to go into kind of a next uh, leg of our discussion, but also pick on something that I thought all of you um, have uh, pointed out for us, which is. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, which is that somehow in the law school space, um, the critical or critique is almost synonymous with interdisciplinarity. So it's something, uh, a critical sensibility or orientation is something that comes from the outside of law. So whether it's activism for Orchid, whether, you know, it's other disciplines for Anud, so hist- uh, sociology, then more recently, I think history, so historical works for, um it's your law and society kind of orientation and thinking. So it's a law and something that is kind of the channel for uh, critical ideas to enter, enter law. Okay, so I don't know if you, would you agree with that? So and so in my experience, what happens is because of that, because the outside of the law school or outside of the discipline is identified at the site of critical ideas, is that the, the more purists in the discipline, uh, with the purists in the discipline, there's kind of a conflict. And and as to what is a law, uh, what qualifies as a law course, what doesn't. And this conflict kind of manifests or is kind of resolved somewhat in the designing of elective courses, right? So there is kind of a uh, divide between the core course and the elective courses, right? And it kind of finds some expression or resolution the way in which electives are designed. So I want you all to really reflect a little bit on, on that aspect of the law school curriculum which is that you have the opportunity actually to design courses, electives, that bring together all of these uh, ideas. And yet there is always this uh, battle with the core course uh, where students say, oh, but why is this, you know, why? Uh, so for example, when you then therefore teach a course in feminist jurisprudence, students, students often come and tell you, oh, this should have been a, an elective. Why is this a core course? Why, is, why do we all have to study this course, right? So it, there are those kinds of outcomes and, uh, as well. So I don't know if this resonates with uh, with you all, but maybe if you can reflect on this aspect of the curriculum designing and that a bit.
2: I don't know who wants to go first.
5: Am I audible? Uh, yeah,
2: okay, you're I'm audible. <laughs>
3: Uh, They're pretending time. they didn't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Very little time, so let's uh, move on with it. So yeah, I'm currently teaching a lecturing elective and federalism, uh, which I cross-listed with other schools, not just the law school but the other schools. And it's been interesting because you know, I, I precisely, you know, the point is that uh, this is a this is too important uh, area as far as I'm concerned to be left to the lawyers. You know, obviously, uh, like much of the much, much of law in general. And and it's been interesting because um, somehow. Uh, you know, it's seen as a kind of technical area, but it's not. I mean, especially the way uh, I try to do it. Obviously, it's a, it's work in progress, and um, and yeah, I mean, uh, th- there have been some takers from um, from other disciplines, but yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. It's a challenge because obviously, the law students uh, take over and they try to take it in a particular direction of you know intricate <laughs> legal debates, which is which is interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a challenge, you know, I, earlier I have, um, I have taught in a sociology program for, for, for a while. I have taught in a interdisciplinary law and society program uh, uh, also for, for, for some time. And I've taught sociology in all of them as well as, um, uh, you know, in social theory, et cetera. But um, it's, in terms of designing, um, I mean, I think teaching to diverse audiences is hard. Uh, I mean, I, I was a colleague of Rupmini still till, till a few years back. And, you know, it's, it's hard to teach in a, in, in a, in a in public university precisely because of the diversity of audiences in so many so many levels. Um, so it's particularly hard to teach an interdisciplinary program because of diversity of, um, of backgrounds in terms of not just class and uh, a language, but also in terms of disciplinary backgrounds. Because when I was teaching in a law and society program and, you know, you couldn't, if some students come from law and some students come from, um, you know, from sometimes science programs, and it's really difficult to bridge that divide. I think we, we all know it. And uh, so that that is a the diversity of audience in terms of background, in terms of disciplinary background, is always a hard thing to negotiate. Um, and um, and yeah, I mean, uh, in, in, in in and similarly uh, in, in in the in, in the law school, it is um, it's 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 a difficult. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, I think cross-listing um, makes it, um, I mean, I actually never surprised when I was cross-listing my course that I looked at the long list of electives that, that almost no course was cross-listed from the law school, actually. Very, very few, right? So which is, which? I think that's what it puts us in a hard space. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a difficult space to negotiate. But um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, when I studied, um for my, I didn't actually talk about a journey as much as others did. I, was, I wasn't clear how, what is really expected, perhaps. But you know, when I graduated from, uh, from law, I worked briefly as a lawyer, and then I did a master's in law uh, in the UK. And that's where, actually, I got interested in legal history, legal anthropology, my, my dissertation was on that. And at that time, my idea was that having studied in a five-year law program, that basically I felt like I didn't really... I mean, I felt like, in a sense, illiterate. I felt that I didn't have enough of an education. And I felt like, for me, if there's interesting work to be done on law, it has to come from outside law. At least at that time, that was my idea, right? That, you know, that, that for me, the interesting scholarship on law was actually coming from history and anthropology in particular. Um, and that's why I, I went to grad school in anthropology in the U.S. And um, so, so for, I had this idea that basically, um, you know, that, that's, where, that's where the exciting... Um, uh, I mean, this way, that, that's the at the time, I felt that was the only interesting way of doing research on law. But, of course, in hindsight, I realized I, w- I was wrong. Uh, I think that's not the case, actually. I think um, precisely the question of imminence comes in, and uh, that's that's something. Anyway, I'm, I'm going far adrift from from the prompt of, so I'll let you oh, go.
0: Can I just uh, come in on Debulina's? Uh, um, so when you were talking about the and, Debulina, I was just uh, uh, you know reminded of all the ands that came into the four elective courses that I had designed as part of the law school. One was gender and law, the other was disability and law. Uh, the third was law, culture, and pluralism. And the fourth was law and social change. And again, you know, I'm sure none of these are, uh, you know, sounding, many law schools would do these, right, with with this and, and. And and as if, you know, bringing in not just interdisciplinarity, that's one thing definitely, but the other is that we've also had a phase. And, you know, that's why I was thinking that this 20 years is uh, something that, I'm just starting to think about, we've also had this phase of, uh, you know, categories claiming identities and rights and citizenship and those becoming, you know, parts of elective courses in the law schools. Yeah. So so therefore gender and law, disability and law, uh, you know, there have been courses around child rights and law around, you know, other kinds of things. So in some ways, uh, you know, the ways in which claiming of citizenship has happened, there are also ways in which they they have found a place inside curriculum in some ways. And the other is, you know, these, um, you know, I don't know, maybe thematics or, 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 um, uh, or the larger vision, which is social change. Law is an instrument of social change, right? You know, uh, that's uh, that's that's the one thing that you cannot not say to uh, uh, to either a law student or uh, a sociology student who is doing law. So, so, so I think that that it, it you know it warrants some reflections around the ways in which electives are imagined, thought who teaches these electives, and as if the core still remains undisturbed when these electives are done. I'll stop.
2: Thank you, uh, Ushik. Uh... Thank you.
4: Yeah, I, I um, have uh, two set of uh, thoughts about this. One, is more particular to the subject that I've been teaching now for the past six years, which uh, in an Indian law school is called uh, jurisprudence, which might go by other names elsewhere, legal theory or philosophy of law, for example. And uh, the Bar Council of India prescribes that uh, every law school must have a course called jurisprudence. And it also lays out uh, a a syllabus. now this syllabus clearly like in in most other parts of the the common law world has a you know a primary focus on um the uh, the positivist tradition um with some kind of rival elements that one um, uh, you know introduces uh through natural law and uh, mostly um american legal realism now that's kind of been the course for uh at, 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 at Jindal for, for a very long time. And uh, some of my colleagues uh, were uh, a little dissatisfied, including me, about the fact that, uh, like most kind of uh, uh, legal theory or jurisprudent textbooks, in, in the organization of this course as well, uh, you know, the module on um, critical legal theory or critical legal studies or feminist jurisprudence comes Right at the end of of the course, and is given, say, just a week in comparison to say, you know, three weeks to uh, something something like uh, you know the command theories or um, you know, Hart or, 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 or Dworkin, um, for for example. Just just very much in the way in which the contents one looks to the contents page of a jurisprudence textbook, you'd see a similar kind of organization. So, you know, we we kept wondering what do we do? We only have 15 weeks to uh um teach a course like this and uh, the somewhat compromised uh outcome was to uh introduce uh what we now call is Jurisprudence 2. And there's a somewhat kind of uh uh you know, for for the sake of easy understanding, there's some, some kind of a division that we uh you know, uh consider in the way in which these courses uh operate. So uh, jurisprudence one is more interested in 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 the analytical tradition, jurisprudence two is interested in the critical tradition. Um, though there, you know, we do end jurisprudence one with modules on feminist jurisprudence and introduce them to uh, uh, the way in which uh, American legal realism gets inherited by critical legal studies. Now, the the interesting issue uh, was that when jurisprudence two got introduced into the curriculum as a core course. Uh, There was a massive kind of, uh, you know, response from students who uh, thought that they were being treated as guinea pigs um, because uh, jurisprudence one is kind of quote unquote real jurisprudence and jurisprudence two ought to be made into an elective for those who are uh, only interested in further pursuing um, ideas uh, in, in jurisprudence. Now, this produces a a certain kind of conundrum. uh, And the conundrum has to do with, you know, you can see uh, Margaret Thornton uh, in the audience. And in in one of her pieces, she talks about the the tension between uh, 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 separationism and integrationism as a way of thinking about how do you bring in feminist ideas into uh, the law school curriculum. And the jurisprudence course, uh, jurisprudence two course, which uh, in many ways uh, attends to what, on a one, you know what Mari Matsuda would call uh, outsider jurisprudence you know traditions that have been kept outside of uh, the, the, the the analytical tradition um, and to bring them in. And, in and and so it's been a constant kind of negotiation with students which after having taught it for about four years I see has been quite a productive one. And the productive outcome of that conversation with students where we end up spending almost the first two weeks trying to hard sell the course in in the sense that why is this of as much value as Jurisprudence 1, given that uh, theory-heavy courses are in any case considered of of lesser value um, uh, in the the Indian law school space. Um, What the conversation has helped me particularly um, is to... Um, think about the outside, not necessarily in the way Devolina was characterizing it as, you know, uh, uh, something, a a source or a a point of reference um, that is outside of the discipline of law, Uh, but to in fact attend to the ways in which uh, the discipline has in fact forced or exiled uh, a set of uh you know traditions ideas ways of thinking experiences um and has produced a common sense about that outside as the outside um and, and so uh i found uh that that negotiation with students in the initial you know, uh, weeks of teaching jurisprudence too, extremely productive. So the pushback that comes is in fact a helpful pushback because it helps us think about, um, you know, uh, think about what the outside really is. It is out, Is it outside the discipline or are disciplines organized, you know, in the forms of concentric circles in a way? So there are, of course, lines differentiating what's the core and what's outside the core. But what's outside the core is not naturally outside the core, but that's there's actually been a history that's produced that outside. So maybe it's more part of the discipline than than one would imagine um, it to be, and that in many ways helps break down um, the, the the you know the way in which the and holds apart law and whatever else comes uh, after uh, the the and. Um, and just the, just another really short point uh, is that I do think that in the Indian law school, given the fi- existence of the five-year law course for a fair uh, amount of time now, there is still a certain kind of acceptance of the social science approach to thinking about so law and society. You know, is something that one wouldn't dismiss uh, in its entirety, um, although you know one might be suspicious of it in terms of uh, its technocratic um uh, uh uh the kind of technocratic skills it, it might teach but I do think that the humanities do get uh, a kind of short shift uh despite the presence of uh the five-year law was for you know uh for you know over three decades now and um I, I think that's one area that um law school curriculum in in India uh, you know in the in the and sense, uh, still doesn't engage with as much commitment as it has uh, with the social sciences.
1: Thank you so much, Yoshika. Uh, I think there's a lot there and I'm mindful that we have two minutes remaining. So I would propose, I ask, I sort of wanted to, uh, there's a lot on the table. I wanted to gather some of those things together. If it's okay with you guys, I'll have a short question. If you can have brief responses, all three of you. And it's really a sort of a, uh, perhaps a programmatic kind of a question. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of, I've been reflecting on uh, teaching online uh, these days, how much discomfort there is with discomfort, right? Introducing discomfort into the audience to live with discomfort. There's a lot of discomfort with that. So in a way, all of you touched upon how the sort of the classroom experience, um, and, and especially as, as Anuj said, in an in a interdisciplinary uh, audience, uh, there's even less uh, sort of patience with discomfort. You really have to sort of bring people on board. Otherwise, you know, you're not, you're just talking to the philosophers or whatever, or the, or the social scientists. So uh, what techniques, and you sort of gestured towards it, Oshik, uh, at the end. If there's a, uh, some techniques or strategies you felt worked for you in uh, sort of uh, having that anti-celebrationist uh, uh, persona there in the classroom and it worked, for students. Uh, so um, leave the colleagues aside, I think just the classroom, what, what do you think uh, were some of the things that work or you think might work? Uh, so yes, maybe, uh, you know, how do you sort of uh, mobilize humanities in a way that doesn't instrumentalize, again, the and or the outside or, or, or the margins or what have you. So.
3: Yeah, so let start. Or- so, uh, so there's, there's been a lot going on in this country in the last few years. Especially, in you know, te- te- teaching constitutional law is a strange thing at this point. Uh, uh, you know, uh, when the constitution is, or any idea of constitutionalism is being sh- is being shredded. Um, you know, <laughs> pretty pretty much every day. So, uh, so it's a kind of a strange um, uh, time. You know, when students ask you, uh, or you know, when to say something that X is un- unconstitutional. Does not make much sense when when it's things which are prima facie and obviously unconstitutional continue to survive and uh, you know continue to so, so it's a very kind of uh, a cognitive dissonance when you're teaching law law at this uh, constitutional law at this point in india so so I think what has happened is that the last few years have I been mean, such a shock from um from uh, i mean I, th- I think even for students it's just the examples of what's been going on from, let's say, what's happened in Kashmir two years back to, you know, so CAA, uh, the kind of citizenship issue. Uh, so many issues that, you know, that bringing the outside in has not been, frankly, hard, you know. So 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 uh, asking those re- tough questions, uh, because the question of, uh, it's, we are in a situation where the relevance of constitutional law itself is, is moat, while at the same time, while while uh, everyday politics at this point is is kind of, Wrecking any other constitutionalism. At the same time, we have this discipline of constitutional law, which continues with this, you know, celebratory uh, account, this kind of triumphalist account of celebration of, of Indian um, constitutional model. So, so you know, this kind of juxtaposing the two is actually, you know, just it, it's it's an it's too obvious almost. Uh, almost. So I think what has happened. I am. So usually, you see, I, I like I said, I'm a great believer in maintenance. But teaching corn law, especially right now, it's it's critique is almost unavoidable. I think if you're being honest with, <laughs> with what you're doing, I think,
2: yeah, it's my current my current situation. Yeah. Thanks, oh, Oshik and Rupini. Any uh, any responses? So
0: so techniques that um, may have worked uh, for students. Um, I'm thinking about two things. One is literally an emphasis and a teaching and a hand holding around how to read. Uh, Primarily because I think that we assume that students know how to read. And uh, over a period of time, one has understood that one has to actually uh, meander through ways in which reading may happen. Yeah. And the reason why it becomes important is something that we have all been talking about is about the plurality of different kinds of texts. Because, uh, you know, clearly one is dealing with uh, sociology, anthropology, feminist studies texts. One is also dealing with the text of the law. And uh, and how is it that they are coming together, not coming together? So yeah, I think the first, uh, you know, bit that I would like that's that's one thing in terms of strategy, how to read. And the second is that if in the law school, the question was what needs to be done in order to change, the question that I have faced in the last, you know, in these five iterations of the law and society class, but also, you know, other classes that I have been teaching here is what should we do? And it's like... Kind of, you know, it's like, tell us the path, not necessarily that I will, so tell us the path doesn't mean that I will follow the path. But...
2: We have some technical difficulties.
5: Yeah, I think... uh
1: Ushik, do you Jeez. want to take over? And so apologies to everyone for going over a bit. It's a South Asian panel. It helps <laughs> with the. Um,
4: no, a, a very quick response. So, I, um, the way in which Anu was talking about teaching uh, constitutional law at a, at a particular point like this. Uh, produces an experience of some kind of cognitive dissonance um, for him, given the political context in which a subject like this is being taught. Um, and yet, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the way Anuj talked about bringing the outside in is the most obvious thing to do. Um, and yet one wouldn't necessarily see a dilution in the interest, you know, for students in a subject like constitution. Uh, so irrespective of uh, the crisis, in constitutional law in the current moment, it's still a subject that holds a certain kind of value and stature in the larger curricular arrangement uh, in, in the law school, which for example, I would certainly think with my experience of teaching jurisprudence, it, it, it's possibly one of the least uh, 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 you know uh, regarded subjects that might actually help students train to become something. Um, so in many ways, I think uh, my, Attempts in uh, in 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 teaching a subject like that that is always already considered of, of less value um, is is to think about the outside as the uh, the personal or the experiential and I think that has a that has much to do with my own um, training and thinking in um, in feminism um, and I think that is in many ways what uh, uh, has enabled me to. Um, so the outside is are just not political events uh, that are uh, that are outside that kind of might bring alive some of the key ideas in a concept. Uh, but the outside is something that uh, produces again to to invoke uh, uh, an expression from Mari Matsuda uh, that produces multiple consciousness. Where, where where the law school classroom forces us to keep something outside. Um, where uh, your response is possibly, you know, uh, silence is not necessarily taken to, taken to be something that one ought to take seriously when you ask a class a question and there is no response. Um, so in many ways, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in thinking about critique as something that changes the world. Um, and that is not the kind of romanticized imagination about critique that I hold on to in a jurisprudence classroom. Um, any longer, because even romanticization has a certain kind of technocratic, instrumentalized, um, uh, you know, um, uh, can can be turned into something that is technocratic and instrumentalist, um, you know, in that sense. Uh, So my attempt clearly is to just, you know, uh, ask students to not talk about what they understood about you know, a a paragraph or a line that they have read, but but to actually respond by saying, you know, even if they say, I didn't understand and to take, I didn't understand seriously and and use that as a productive moment to uh, initiate a conversation.
2: So to take um, ordinary responses, seeds.
4: I'll stop.
5: No, 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 go on, go on, finish. I thought you stopped, so you stopped. No, 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 that's it. I don't have anything to say. Okay. So I think we've lost Rukmini or is she back? Uh, Back. Okay.
0: There was a power cut which doesn't happen at all. Wow.
5: (laughs) (laughs) It's stopping you from being critical. Anyway, so um, I think we've... uh, Adil... I think we should end now, is it? It's just, yeah, we're kind of going over 10 minutes. Uh, Sorry, Rukmini, we cannot come back to you and kind of, uh, because I also thought I'd cut off Oishik in the middle. But yeah, so, but anyway, thank you very much uh, for coming today and thanks to just, everyone and to Ila for giving us this platform, you know, to really reflect on some of these things, which we talk about. And those of us who are part of uh, the law schools, in some ways, we talk about in small pockets and intimate circles, but this was good to have this platform, to have this conversation. And hopefully uh, this is, uh, you know, the beginning of a longer conversation that we hope to have together with all of you and with more people joining in. We're also really sorry that we couldn't, uh, you know, uh, get others to ask questions and join in the conversation because many of you here would have loved to, you know, so, but we really have to end today. So um, thank you very much. And um, yeah, have have a good day. Uh, Adil, do you want to just kind of have the last word?
1: Uh, no, thank you, That's that's great. So thank you everyone and thank you so much.
0: you've been listening to the ILA podcast to find out more go to soundcloud.com forward slash podcast that's double i
2: l a h podcast